If you are a pitcher, if you are a pitching coach, if you are a friend of a friend who pitches, you're in for a tremendous treat. Lance Wheeler joins us in the bullpen. Welcome to In the Bullpen with Mark Dewey, sponsored by Developing Contenders Ministries. You're listening to the Fight Laugh Feast Network. Thank you for joining us. And look who's coming up. High block ball into right field. She is gone. If you aren't familiar with Lance Wheeler and what he brings to pitchers and pitching coaches alike, you don't want to miss this interview. For that matter, regardless, you'll be better for dropping in on our conversation. Now, Lance and I had to practice what we preach about making adjustments and overcoming obstacles as we battled through technical difficulties. I trust, however, you'll be glad that we did. Lance, thank you so much for joining me in the bullpen today. Man, just glad to be here, Mark. Appreciate you having me on the show. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Now, I am familiar with you and Baseball Think Tank and Pitch Palooza and the Core Velocity Belt, but some of our listeners might not be. So what I want to do is begin by giving you an opportunity to tell us who you are, what it is you do, how you got to where you are today, and then we'll get into some uh, some pitching conversation. All right. Um, well, I got started in coaching when I was, I had a, I had a little bit of a, a, a unique road, not a path that, that most take. Because I played college baseball at Moorhead State, grew up in Kentucky. And after, right after graduating from college, I was a, a single dad and uh, doing pitching lessons, mowing yards. And then my buddy, he got a the head coaching job at the local high school and he needed some help. So I jumped into it, got my first taste of, of being a volunteer <clears throat> and did that for a year. And then you know what market it got to the point I'm like, I don't this is pretty tough, man, with the, the time constraints and financial considerations, especially being a single dad, it was it was tough. So I'd made a decision. I told my buddy, I was like, Man, I can't do this anymore. This is my, my last year of being able to coach. And then it was the final uh weekend of the year. We had a state tournament game that was being held at the field and I started talking to this guy in his press box. And we talked for seven innings and before the uh the game was over he offered me the financial deal of a lifetime. That was to live in a high-rise dorm in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky, whiskey country with me and my two-year-old. So I had a two-year-old roommate as a dorm director making $350 a month. <laughs> and we did that for, for a year. And then once you know how it goes with baseball, it's always seems to be year to year. And again, I was faced with the same decision. At the end of the year. Like, what am I going to do? How am I going to support my habit, so to speak, of, of coaching? Um, cause it's, it's, it's crazy. Like I tell these young guys all the time getting into coaching. My first four years working full time, 80, 100 hours a week. I think I made $6,500 in four total years doing that. And so, uh, but you know what? It, it was, it was a blessing the whole time because when I stepped into the world of pitching there, I can still remember like it was yesterday. Um, of just getting in front of that computer, and I had a degree in exercise science, but I would get in front of the computer. This was with ASMI, American Sports Medicine Institute. And this is at the time they were really starting to test for injuries, blah, blah, blah. 
And I, I was so frustrated and confused. And, you know, Dr. Ross, I'm coaching at a junior college in Kentucky in the first week that I'm there. I had to break up a fight between two guys because one said that Abraham Lincoln's beard was still growing. The other guy said he was a dummy and he punched him. So that's who I was dealing with. So I had to keep it simple, right? And so we had a good run there two years. And then Cliff Terracusa ended up being my best man in our wedding. But he mentioned that Lipscomb University was needing a pitching coach. So it was me, my wife, and Riley. So we drive to Nashville uh, in a Chevy <laughs> Cavalier with, with a spare tire. Uh, 134 miles from outside of Louisville to Nashville, and we took a volunteer job there. So probably not the road I would suggest most to take. And then after that year at Lipscomb, we had a coaching change. So here I was again faced with the same scenario, like how am I going to support this habit? And we're just blessed. We're just fortunate. God was looking out for me and, and was able to stay at Lipscomb for a total of four years. We had a couple of good runs. Went on to Louisiana Monroe, Duck Dynasty country. And from there, uh, I left and started working with one of my best friends, Hunter Bledsoe, who's in that eastern Tennessee area. And, you know, what with baseball, think tank, core velocity, none of that stuff was ever intended to be in a, a business originally. It's just kind of how things worked out. So when, when did you start? When was that first year when you did the volunteer job at high school? 2002. 2002. So you've been at this in one way or another for over 20 years from a coaching standpoint. Now, yep. before we talk more particular about pitchers, just a little information for the people listening. What is the baseball think tank? What is Pitchapalooza? What is the core velocity belt? Yeah, well, baseball think tank, that was when I had left coaching college. I had, I had gotten home or gotten back to, to Nashville. And just to stay in contact with my coaching buddies, because my entire phone was just all, you know, it goes just all coaches, it seems like. And so I said, I'm going to just create a website, whatever, whatever, however you do that. Cause I'm like the least tech savvy person when it comes to any of the, the website coding or anything. But, uh, I started it by, uh, I just wanted to, uh, share lessons and some of the things that I was doing with my buddies and just started writing emails and all of a sudden it took off. But the, the idea or premise behind baseball state tank was just, questioning, challenging the, the current status quo in pitching and the ideas and concepts and just kind of trade, trade ideas back and forth. Uh, with the core velocity belt, that was a totally different animal. Uh, that started my first year at Lipscomb. Uh, I was a volunteer, so I'd go pick up my daughter. I'd come back to the basketball gym to do lessons, and she was like a kid that was into everything. So I took a Jaeger band on a wooden basketball floor with her and her socks, and she wrapped it around her waist and she backed up and she would drop to the floor like she was water skiing. So across that slick wooden floor, she would scoot. I was like, oh, wow, that's a perfect babysitter. So I guess it was just parental instinct. I'm down there doing the lesson 15 minutes in. I look out the corner of my eye and her, her heels, bless her heart. But wow, it turns out being pretty good for all of us. But her heels hit the, uh, hit the basketball floor when it did. So her up vertical slammed her right into a concrete wall. Aye. And I'm seeing this in slow motion. I'm thinking, holy crap, my daughter's dead. Halfway there, gosh, this would be perfect for pitchers. <laughs> so by the time I peeled her off the wall, I already had the idea about to cancel the lesson and head to Walmart and get a back support brace. And then over the next 10 years with that, like again, like this was just, the belt was, there was never an intention to sell or make money off any of this stuff. Like it was never, ever a thought. It was just something that, a passion that just 
I was fortunate that it worked out for me. And so the Corvallisi belt, we worked on that. Mandy did, my wife. Like, she was still white. She worked on that thing for probably 10 years, blowing up sewing machines, burning sewing machines to get it right. And with the belt, what I was experimenting with that time was just trying to how to teach the lower half. But I found it really difficult because it's, it's really hard to put that feel into words and everybody's perceptions a little bit differently. So after 10 years, we, we get it. And we said, hey, let's try to get a patent on this thing. And that's kind of what happened. Um, with Pitchapalooza, that's a, a pitching conference. And that was started in 2013. But each year after coaching college baseball, I would uh, I would reach out to who I thought or I would like to learn more for. So I'd call these fishing coaches and just trade ideas back and forth. And finally, I said, you know what? Let's just let's have something like that small here at Nashville this year. And we'll call it Pitchapalooza. So the first year, 49 people showed up. And Mark, over the next couple of years, it just continued to double until 2019, I think it's it reached 19 or 2019 that reached close to 900 people and then COVID hit. But again, it was just the idea of, of sharing ideas and challenging the status quo when it comes to pitching concepts and ideas. Well, that leads well into what I want to do next, which is talk about both sides of the coin. The first side we're going to look at is what I would call the negative side in your years of coaching pitchers, talking with pitching coaches, doing Palooza, all of the things that you have done, where we are today as it regards developing pitchers from the amateur level, even up to working with major leaguers, what would you say are some of the most often referred to, could be sayings, could be methods of instruction, could be drills that are supposed to help pitchers develop, but actually are detrimental to pitchers developing? Oh, that's a, that's a good one because I, I'm a big believer that I, I believe that so many pitchers are, are unmade versus developed. You know, it, it seems like, especially today's age, and I don't know where this started, but it, it seems like it's almost more about the coach than it, than it is the player. Um, communication is, in my opinion, the biggest obstacle because whenever we're talking about movement and the infinite number of ways the body can move, like, here's an example for you. Each year, I would say, I would, in my pitching camp, my first three years, I would say, all right, I want everybody in the camp, there'd be 20 kids in there. I said, I want everybody in here, if you know what stay back means, I want you to raise your hand. So, of course, every every kid in the room knew what stay back means. So, you think, oh, that's good, man, we've got an educated population here. But the problem was, I said, don't spurt it out loud. I want you to write it down on a piece of paper, because all of you guys know the correct answer, so just write it down. Then I would take that piece of paper and I would read out what stay back <laughs> means. Let's just say of the 20, all 20 of them had a totally different perception of something that simple. Mm. And that kind of opened my eyes to, to it, it has to be the player's words. It has to be their interpretation and their perception. Because if not, any form of inefficient communication is always going to appear in the form of inefficient movement. And I, I kind of think that's what I see more so than anything in pitching is you know, we've got these metrics, and they're treating these guys like headless horses. It's like, just cut your head off. We just need your body, and we can make these biomechanical mannequin positions and just kind of go from there. But it, it's insane to me how how from when I first started to dig into this stuff in 2000, early 2000s and seeing ASMI with the slow motion capture, cameras, all the high-tech equipment that we see today, it's just coming full circle. It's just it's just repackaged and repurposed in the same way. But at the end of the day, I think they're still, they're still trying to box everybody in to, to fit these metrics. They're not taking any, 
individuals without taking into consideration the context of, of who they are, where they come from. And that's, that's what drove me crazy. Like I was really researching this because I was, had a goal just to try to write a book. And during this time, I was really deep into research. Where did this idea or concept of the mechanical models come from? Who, you know, was it Andrews? Was it ASMI? Who, who was the one that was pushing this? And right about that time, COVID hit. <clears throat> and so here we are in COVID, and I'm questioning the pitching science. And now I see the, the COVID science come out, and I'm thinking, holy crap, these are twins. It's the exact same thing. It's, it's taking historical mass data and applying it to the individual as if it's the same. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started to think that a lot of these pitching guys might be Fauci certified. <laughs> no, at, at the end of this interview, we're going to, we're going to get to how people can follow what you do and what you say. And, and we'll give the heads up right now that when they do so, they better be aware that you're not afraid of saying things like you just did or writing things like you just did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I'm, I think I take that after my grandmother. I can, Without meaning to be, I can be a little bit offensive, but coming from Kentucky, I mean, I guess I'm not the most polished guy to begin with. Well, yeah. The other thing is not to take anything away from you, Lance, but it, it's almost impossible not to be offensive at this point in time. Oh, right. I think it's our national pastime is to be offended. <laughs> All right. So looking kind of at, at kind of the big picture of what really gets in the way, and, and I think it's very important Well, you said two things that really stick out. One at some point in time, it seems it has become about the coaches uh-huh. or even about the parents. Even right. if you look at youth baseball, it now seems to be about adults either making money or living vicariously or thinking little Johnny's going to get a full ride to Vanderbilt or drafted in the first round by the Mets or whatever it might be. And that's very sad in and of itself. And then when you try to instruct individual pitchers without dealing with the individual you're not simply yeah. you're not simply dealing with uh, a set of motor skill development. You're dealing with a human being, you know, a person right. with a mind, with a body, with a heart, with with passion, with desires, with fears. So, taking all of that into account, let's go now to the positive side, especially because there are a number of people that listen to this podcast that do have children, uh, boys, sons that are pitchers. There are people that listen that that are pitchers, amateur and professional. So as you're working with a person, whatever the age may be, trying to help them get better, trying to help them get the most out of their God-given talent, what are some of the best ways that you have found to help develop pitchers? Keep your mouth shut. Try to say as little as possible is the first place I would start. Um, Second is asking them questions, because here's something I learned the hard way, is that I remember working with a kid, and we were going through the drills, and we're trying to get him to to just rotate through the ball, be a little bit more aggressive through through the follow through and finish, and he just couldn't do it. So we would go back to the drills and really good at the drills, finish get on the mound, repeated the same thing, just couldn't do it. So finally, after about an hour and a half of being the expert, I handed over the keys and I asked the kid, I was like, Man, are you trying to finish the field in position? Like, yeah, I thought that's what I was supposed to do. Well, don't do that. Bam, it was perfect. So it wasn't the drill, it was the communication barrier that was that was kind of holding him back because it's form follows function, but function follows purpose. What are you trying to do? So just understanding what the kid is trying to do, what he perceives he's supposed to do, is where I always start. Because if you think about a kid that if he, if he was told by Don Drysdale that a, a longer stride is going to increase his velocity, well, it probably doesn't matter what I tell him because that's still very important. 
important to him. So knowing he had that advice until I actually knew what he was trying to do, it, it wouldn't really matter because usually the, often the lowest hanging fruit is just going to be their, their purpose, their perception or their intention. And simply by knowing that, like you'll see changes in minutes, not necessarily months, whenever you're talking about with the brain and, and the communication and their understanding. So that's the first place. Next is I think all this data is, is really, really good. Like it's obviously it's, it's feedback. I always equate it to driving. We look at all these metrics, all this data. And it, the thing is that we're constantly taking in data. Data is available in, in multiple sources. It's not just the numeric value. It's sites. It's sounds. It's, you know, it's, it's everything that we see in, in the daily world. Like, say, for example, driving. When I'm driving, I'm, I'm feeling the gas pedal. I'm looking at the data on the dashboard. And over time, I start to create an association for how fast or slow I'm going. But I think the key to all the data is, it has to be immediate. Like, it can't be delayed. The reason that you can feel the difference 35 and 55 in the school zone is because you've got that number right in front of you, while you've also got that physical sensation, that perception of pushing, pushing the gas pedal. If somebody sends you that speedometer a week later, you probably don't have that. So having a crystal clear goal and then surrounding it with, with immediate feedback, here's something for you. We've got four kids, and... Why, why is it that so many pitchers struggle to throw strikes, but you hand them a phone and they don't misspell a word. So they can feel the difference between the keys millimeters apart, but they can't feel the difference between a two foot strike. Mm. The same thing with basketball coming from Kentucky and basketball. It's all we did. Baseball was just something we did when we didn't have a, a basketball game, but in basketball, there's a very clear goal. There's only one goal. Everybody in the gym knows what that goal is. And so as you start to shoot basketball, you get that immediate feedback. There's no gray area. You either won or you lost. And so over time with the quality goal, that immediate couple with that immediate feedback, you start to connect the senses. So you create an association or you create a feel. So I think with the long, making a long story short, it's whatever you're doing, have a crystal clear goal and get feedback. Feedback again comes in the side of sounds. It comes in, the location, there's just so many different ways to do this. But what you want to do is make it to where every throw counts, every pitch counts, and then you're just fine-tuning and adjusting based on that pitch. As you teach pitchers, and as you're teaching them, and you want them to get feedback. Now, I know there's a lot of things that, that can be done, including the core velocity belt, which um, you know, you and I, you you worked with me one, just an hour or two one time out in Arizona on it. And, and that's about all the experience I have with it personally, but I've seen it a lot and I like it a lot. What is it about the belt? What is it as it regards the feel that the belt being used and then not used and used again, how does that contribute to this, this proper feel, the proprioceptive awareness of the pitchers and, and getting them to move better? Yeah, uh, that's a great question is it's, it's the compression, the way the belt is designed as it compresses around the, the middle of the body, it heightens that awareness because it's like a, having a cast on your, your arm or having braces on your teeth and then taking it off and suddenly you're, you're really have this heightened sense of awareness. What it does is it creates the compression and fits tightly so it gets the brain's attention because it's an external, it's something the body couldn't create on its own. 
So because the brain's attention's there, suddenly it starts to bru- boost that proprioception or that sense of knowing where the middle of your body is. You get this sense of it being lighter after taking it off. Uh, so that, that's the biggest thing is, number one, it's that proprioception. We call it awareness, we call it body awareness. Because without that, it really doesn't matter. I always used to say, imagine if your fingers fell asleep or you were a pianist and you iced your fingers before a concert and they were desensitized or you couldn't feel them. How good would that song feel? Or how, how good would that song sound? Mm. Um, because it would be out of sequence. But that's what I see with so many pictures. It's, it's not necessarily a, a mechanical issue. So often, it's just a movement issue. They're just not aware of, of the middle of their body, especially with today's culture, with them sitting down and playing video games. They're not out riding bikes or playing multiple sports or climbing trees. Yep. And that's, that's an issue for a lot of guys. So what shows up as arm problems or lower body problems really comes back down to not having the, the awareness level of the middle of the body. That's really what the belt does. And, and how important is it in the, in the big scheme of things? You know, people talk a lot about building arm strength and these kinds of things. And, and I have an issue just saying, well, just define for me what you mean by arm strength, because I think it's right. kind of like the question you asked. If you ask 20 different people, you'd probably get 20 different answers. But yeah. as it regards the ability to throw with velocity, the ability to throw with some sharpness to your breaking pitches, the ability to throw strikes, the ability to stay healthy, how right. important is the core of the body? Oh, it's huge. It's, it's different. you got to realize that to most listeners, like you can't pick up a fork without first initiating the core, without the middle of the body. Um, so the middle of the body, especially in a rotational sport, it, it, it's everything. That's where uh, our center of gravity is. And with the core, you've got to think about the old song, like with the kids, the hip bones connect to the backbone. And so any link in that chain, the, large, the body's largest muscles are attached at the core. And as far as the kinetic chain goes, it starts proximal to distal, meaning from the middle out. So a way to say that, if you jumped into a pool and the waves rippled and splashed out of the pool, those waves and ripples at the end would be the arm, whereas the initial splash that caused all these ripples that led to the arm would be the core. I think that's a great. I think that paints a great picture for people that may not be as familiar with the importance of the core. And and again, we could talk about the importance of the core in any, like you said, picking up a fork, any athletic endeavor, anything in life. Mm-hmm. But because we're talking pitching and pitchers here, in your experience, have you seen the core and along with that slash the ability to move well, in particular through the the middle of the body? as properly emphasized or has the focus at least for a couple of decades or longer now been on other things that, that really might be addressing at best symptoms um, at worst, maybe something that doesn't even need to be addressed. Oh yes. Yeah. And I learned that's a hard way. I feel like writing an apology letter than most of the guys have coached in the past. Um, just, just because of that, and I always joke around this, but it's true. The reason why most pitchers can't use their legs is because they're trying to use their legs. Um, you'll see a lot of guys that are really, they don't have much awareness. They can't really hinge. And and we hear all this hip-shoulder separation and all these ideal positions. But, you know, most kids, they can't stand 
and actually separate, isolate, or rotate the middle of their body without their feet or their shoulders moving. So if I couldn't separate while simply standing there, how am I going to do that on one leg moving down a hill with people on base trying to get people out? It's just going to be very, very difficult. It always comes down to us. It's, it's the movements that make the mechanics. And so I'll, <clears throat> I'll look at it this way. I remember growing up behind my grandmother's house, there's this creek, and there would be, after a storm, there would be trees falling down. So when, wherever we come, we'd see, like, garbage there. So my question would be, we're looking at a pitcher's mound, and we're making the throw, is that if I saw all this trash downstream, as soon as the front foot lands, that's after the waterfall, and I see all these issues showing up, so many times in the past, I focused on that trash downstream without ever looking upstream for the calls. But what I've seen is that it's something so small as taking your eyes and looking left or right or your weight shifting that creates like a cascade effect of dominoes because the first domino, the second domino doesn't fall correctly. I can't expect the last to fall correctly. So instead of focusing on the last domino, you could ask me five-year-old said, hey, if these last five dominoes didn't fall, where would you look? Well, I would look the previous domino. It's the same way with movement. Now, you you mentioned the eyes. I want you to talk a little bit about um, something that you have said that, that really I, I thought was a great way to explain it as it regards anchoring a hammock. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. We play a rotational sport, so you've got to think when it comes to uh, – the baseball, the guys who rotate the most efficiently are typically going to be your better athletes. But you like when you're, you're lying in a hammock. If I'm going to be able to sway or move through the middle of that hammock, I have to have both sides anchored. And that's going to be my eyes and my feet. And what you're going to see a lot of times, as it's just like if I'm riding a horse or I'm, or I'm driving and I'm looking to the left, all of a sudden I'm going to start to sway to the left. The body is the exact same way. And so imagine if I'm looking towards I'm a right-handed pitcher. I look to the right. All of a sudden, I find myself going to the ball of my feet. Well, now that I've gotten to the ball of my feet, I'm no longer in my. I'm no longer in the middle of foot. I can't use that backside, that posterior chain, <clears throat> that posterior chain, hamstrings, glutes. Instead, I'm loading up on my quad, so I push out. And anytime that I push out, I push out as one piece. So the body has it comes standard with features just to keep us upright. We have equal and opposite movements just so we're not humpy-dumpy and our head crashes against, against the floor. So anytime that with, with pitching in, in the eyes and the feet, the body's number one goal is always to stay upright. So if my weight shifts forward, there's going to be a compensation where I have to come back the other way because we're like a two-legged table or a seesaw. We're always making movements to try to stay upright. So it's often something that small with the eyes looking left or right that, that creates that one tiny domino that forces the rest of uh, the delivery to have problems. So if I'm a 14-year-old pitcher or I'm a little league or high school pitching coach, is it wise for me to start as I'm watching or if I'm myself doing it to start by checking are the eyes and the, the feet or the back foot properly anchored? Is that a good place to start? Absolutely. Because if, if you don't have a fixed point, rotation doesn't exist. If I, the rotation doesn't exist, the numbers and the positions that you're, you're seeking, just you're not ever going to find them. And it's often the teeny tiny movements upstream that cause disastrous mechanical problems downstream. 
Because here's a question I've always had. If inputs have outputs, if every movement is a consequence of a previous movement, if every action has an equal but opposite reaction, like you believe that to be true, right? Yes. When I, uh, yeah, yeah you got to trust so science, you're right. <laughs> how could the real problem, thinking that I get the ball, whether I'm in the windup, whatever it is, I simply step, I lift, I move out, I land. How could the real problem ever be at landing if actions have reactions, movements have consequences? Sure, sure. So you you, okay. you spent a good amount of time talking about the, the anchor of the eyes, and you mentioned also mm-hmm. the foot or the back foot. When you're talking about, I think most people would recognize what you meant by the eyes, but I want to make sure they understand when you're talking about the anchor of the foot, what do you mean by that? Oh, anchor of the foot. Well, think about it this way. We're, we're trying to keep, we're trying to keep the feet plugged into the ground. So let's, let's take it out of context. Instead of being the feet, let's think it's an electrical cord. Let's think you're charging up your iPhone and you've got the three prongs that you're putting into the wall. If any of those prongs come loose, there's a good chance it's just going to disconnect the electricity from the phone. That's what I see a lot with the feet. Because the feet are never mentioned. Everybody's talking about the legs. Everybody's talking about the arm. But they're not thinking about the interconnectivity of the body and how one movement affects the next or how one, one inefficient movement causes a, a compensation across the rest of it. So with the feet, um, very, very important that we're able to stay plugged into the ground. So you've got to think, like if my feet are to move, um, I'm standing there, I'm lifting, well, why are my feet moving? If my feet go forward, was it because of the way I swung my leg? If I rock backwards or to the side, there's always going to be an equal but opposite movement. So when I see issues with the feet, I'm always going to start to think. If I see an issue at the bottom, I'm checking the top. If I see an issue on the right, I'm checking the left because that's usually where you're going to find the problem. But the eyes and the feet are, are numero uno for us. All right. I'm, I'm just, there's so many different things that I'd like to talk about with you. It's uh, in particular for the people that listen, because you've got so much to, to offer as it regards pitchers and or those who work with pitchers. If, if I was, if I came to you, if I was, if I was a, a solid high school senior, a guy who almost certainly is going to get a chance to play at the collegiate level. Uh, no, no, no chance at this point in time of being drafted. But I'm good enough. I'm one of that very small percentage that actually gets to play at the collegiate level. And I come to you, and and I'm and I want to work with you. And I know this is kind of a a difficult question because there's a lot of variables that you would take in. But let's just say I walk in that first day and we get to know one another. And I say, Lance, I'm coming to you because I want to get better as a pitcher what would be some of the things that you would talk to me about in that initial meeting before we could actually get to work on things? That's a great, great, great question. The first thing I, I would want to know is how you see yourself because it's often self-perception that leads life's direction. And so I, I would want to know to get a little bit more background information on you because and realize that it, it's a lot simpler than what people make this out to be is, is because development's a choice. And it's really about trying to simplify it. So that would be where we would start with the conversation. But I think the problem I see with so many players is their quality of practice. We were talking about basketball earlier. The reason I can feel my shot and I don't need a coach. And then another thing is, are there, if anybody's listening, if you have ever hired a private Fortnite coach 
or a texting coach let me know because <laughs> most I know haven't. So how are they able to self-teach that but not baseball? So it comes back down to your practice. That would be, we would really high, we would practice how to practice is where we would start because you have to have a present clear goal. You have to have that immediate feedback and you have to fine tune and adjust based on that feedback to the next pitch. That's, that's really the transfer of pitching to where everything counts. But it comes back down to being present because I think a lot of times you get the younger guys that would come into college or pro ball and the game would start to speed up with them on bases or, or whatever it might be. And the reason is they get so caught up that they can't process that feedback that's right in front of them because they're so worried about the last pitch, yet the hitter, everybody else, is picking up that information. They're making adjustments. So before you know it, the game looks like it's moving too fast for you. So it would be the quality of your practice and being present would be uh, would be number one with us as far as the physical side and how to connect it all. And then from there, it would just be based on your evaluation what you were trying to do. Let me piggyback off the quality of practice in, in uh, a particular area. What is your view, and, and, and how has it developed if it has? I'm assuming it has over the last 20 years. As it regards how much a pitcher throws a baseball. Now, I'm not talking about competitively. I'm not talking about a max effort or whatever. But what, what are your views? Generally speaking, do you think that, that pitchers, young or older, throw enough? No. I think that most injuries are caused outside of, and we, we can go on and on about that, but I, I'm a big believer that most arm injuries are caused from a lack of preparation. They're underprepared versus overused. And because the more you start to introduce something to the body, the more it's going to start to adapt to it. But I just don't see players throw it. Now, here's an example for you. When I was coaching at Lipson, had a dozen baseballs in the back of my trunk. thought I was going to be this baseball savior and as I travel around the country, if I ever saw kids throwing outside, I'd stop and give them a baseball. But wouldn't you know, it was the last day of the summer, and I had to just break out the, the baseball and give it to the one kid next door just so I didn't get shut out. He wasn't throwing <laughs> enough. But, yeah, there's just not enough kids that, that throw enough. And, two, I think a lot of guys, it's, it's almost as if the game has switched. The game is played inside a warehouse or a building, and then we're expecting development to take place on the dirt. Mm. And it's game's play on the dirt. It's, it's, it's got to, you've got to get out there. You've got to throw the ball. You've got to make it more game-like and, and get out of your head and quit chasing so many numbers because I think that's really what it's, it's come about. It's kind of lost so much luster with these kids. You're seeing so many players drop out. Yeah, and that's very sad. That's for sure. Well, I know this, Lance, we could talk, or at least I could talk with you. I don't know how many of our listeners would want to stay on for hours and hours, but I know I could. But I have to respect your time. But I want you to let our my listeners know, because I think there's going to be a lot of people that if they're not familiar with the things you write, the things that you put out there, the, the things that you do, I think they're going to want to be. So just let them know how it is they can follow you on social media, how it is they can learn more about what you do, about Pitchapalooza, about Baseball Think Tank, about the core velocity, about all of those things. Oh, absolutely. Um, Twitter is where you're going to send me a lot on social media, and that's at Lance Wheeler, L-A-N-T-Z. Um, and then the two sites that we have is the corevelocitybelt.com and then baseballthinktank.com. If they would just go into either one of those 
options, the email list. They'll get information on everything coming up with all the articles, all the events, everything like that. Great. Now I got a question because I haven't, I haven't, uh, I don't know this. Is Palooza? It was held always in the Nashville area. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it still in Nashville, or do you do it both in Nashville and Southern California, or just one place? No, it's, it's going to be in Nashville again. This past year, I just kind of wanted to reward it over the years, and I wanted something here small in Nashville. So this past year, we just held like almost a, a semi-private event, but the big events always would be in Nashville in December. Okay, so if people can look forward to possibly uh, heading into the Nashville area sometime in December of this year for a Palooza event if they're interested. Yeah, absolutely. All right, great. Well, Lance, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. And again, uh, I appreciate this conversation. I've enjoyed the conversations we've had in the past. The same here, man. Big fan of what you do and what you stand for, man. There's not many guys out there like you, but need more like it. Yeah, thank you, Lance. I thoroughly enjoyed my time with Lance, and I trust you enjoyed listening to the conversation. If you're a pitcher, if you coach pitchers, or simply like pitching, you have plenty to glean from this interview. More than that, you can glean a lot more from Lance if you follow him on Twitter, check out the Baseball Think Tank, and learn more about the Core Velocity Belt. I've been blessed over the last, I think it's maybe 8 to 10 years, to get to know Lance. And he is one of my favorite pitching instructors. He knows his stuff. He's intelligent. He's smart. And he couples that with a great common sense approach to things. His ability to teach is very sound. And I really appreciate something that you heard a little bit about in this interview. Lance's willingness to admit when he has been wrong and even to apologize for it. But I'm also very grateful for something else. That is that he refuses to apologize when there's nothing to apologize for. Lance stands firm on what he believes is right, regardless of the cost to him. He is not afraid of being canceled. Though our conversation focused on pitchers and pitching, I trust that you didn't miss how much of the conversation applies well beyond, far beyond pitching, far beyond the game of baseball. Two things come immediately to my mind. First, it's vital we recognize the importance of being anchored, having our eyes fixed and our feet on a firm foundation. About, I think it was three summers ago, I went to a clinic, baseball clinic, and I was instructing young pitchers. I think they were maybe 10 to 12 years old. And I was trying to keep it very basic. And so as I instructed them, as they came through the bullpen, as part of the, the one of the stations that they would go through, I would say to them, Firm foundation, eyes fixed. Firm foundation, eyes fixed. And as they did those two things, they saw how quickly they were able to throw better pitches, higher quality pitches. And I said to them, just as that is important to pitch well, it's important to live well. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, and Keep your feet on the firm foundation of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. The other thing, when we see trash downstream, that is in our culture, we need to look upstream at the Christian church and at ourselves as Christians. And we should understand that the dominoes, they began falling a long time ago. But that's a conversation for another day. Join us next time for In the Bullpen on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Thank you for listening.